I don't know if you've ever been to the uh, Thanksgiving parade in El Paso, but it's, it's pretty great. And uh, crowds pack the lines of the street all of the way across the entire parade. And they have all kinds of floats and all these things. And the highlight of the Thanksgiving parade in El Paso is the, the Grand Marshal who always uh, comes. And this year, the Grand Marshal was none other than the... Um, uh, WWE luchador named Sin Carra. And you know, Sin Carra is a luchador who comes from Segundo Barrio and he, he fights in the, in the WWE and he's got this big mask on his face. And as uh, Sin Carra is coming down the middle of the, the, the parade, you know, all the people are going, Sin Carra, Sin Carra. And their kids are super excited. And we were at the, the section of the parade where uh, the parade had stopped. And uh, they weren't going anywhere for a little while. And all of a sudden, this little kid in this little um, luchador mask runs out into the middle of the parade and goes up to Sincara. And Sincara picks him up and gives him a big hug. And, and before you know it, everybody's coming up to him and giving him hugs and taking pictures. And, and moms are bringing their babies and you know, getting kisses from Sincara. And they're like crying because Sincara gave my, my son a kiss. And... Uh, <laughs> It was a parade, and the Grand Marshal was, of course, in El Paso, none other than, than a luch, luchador, right? You know, in the ancient world, in, in the Roman times, they had parades for their great luchadors. The great uh, military commanders of Rome, they would be paraded through the streets of the city in, in what was called the Roman Triumph. And in the Roman Triumph, the, the Roman generals, these commanders who had done great things, they would wear green laurel crowns on their head and they would be robed in purple and, and golden togas and they would paint their face red. It was an astonishing sight. And they'd be paraded through the city with uh, chariots of four horses that would take them through the city in, in power and their might. And the parade of these Roman triumph would end at the city, uh, at the, the end at the temple of Jupiter. And the commander would go up into the temple of Jupiter and, and, and give an offering. We see here in Matthew 21 that the triumphal entry of Jesus is it's where he's being paraded through the city on a donkey as the king of Israel. He, and he leads them, he's led up to where? The temple of Yahweh, of God himself. And now we see where we're going to be looking in Matthew 21 verses 12 through 17 today that Jesus is coming into the temple of God with authority as the luchador for God. He is coming as the mighty commander. He's coming as the redeemer, as the true Messiah, meaning the Christ. And in three quick scenes here, we see in the temple, we get a glimpse of the three roles that he fulfills as the Messiah. That he's the prophet and he is the priest and he is the king. And as he comes into the temple, as he's getting ready to come in, the whole city's in an uproar. Like El Paso was for Sinkara. The whole city is asking, who is this guy actually? Who is he? Verse 10. And the crowd say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So we turn into the first scene in the temple. And the question is, what is this guy, Jesus, going to do when he comes into the temple? 
And the first thing that we see him doing is that he is the Messiah who enters the temple as the prophetic messenger of God's judgment. Verse 12, Jesus enters the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. I told you he was a luchador. He's throwing tables and throwing seats. This is a prophetic action. We oftentimes call this the cleansing of the temple because he's disrupting the practices of the corrupt money changers. Yet, you think about it. Pretty quickly, the tables go back up. The money changers set things up. Money goes back. And everything is back to normal. You see, in the strict sense of this idea right here, what Jesus is doing, he's not actually cleansing the temple at this moment. This is primarily a prophetic action that he's doing. Because when Matthew writes this, uh, he's bringing to our mind a picture of the Old Testament uh, where the Jewish audience would immediately know uh, this idea of Malachi 3.1. And this is what it says in Malachi 3. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you be- delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? this picture of this Old Testament Messiah coming into his temple with judgment. And when Jesus comes into the temple, overturning and kicking tables and the money goes flying, this is exactly what he's doing. So what's his message? What's the prophet Jesus, the Messiah's message? He quotes, actually, from the Old Testament prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah. He says in verse 13, quoting from these two other Old Testament prophets, he says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, from Isaiah 56. But you, you have made it a den of robbers. Quoting from Jeremiah. You see, Jesus here, he is a prophet of God who is angry because the very place, the very place where God had promised that his presence would dwell with his people had become nothing other than a hideout for corruption and thievery and robbery. We have to remember the context of this period is that this is what's called the Passover. And so everybody from all over Israel and the proselytes are to come into Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices. They're to provide a lamb as a sacrifice for the blood atonement. But if you were too poor and you could not afford a lamb, the law in Leviticus said that a person who could not afford a lamb could offer two pigeons or two turtle doves. And so the idea of this is so that nobody would be excluded from the holy presence of God and worshiping him. And we know that most of the people who offered uh, sacrifices were offering these, these things. And, and people are pouring into Jerusalem from all over. And it's crowded. And, and many people, they don't, aren't able to bring their own sheep or their own pigeons because they're traveling from far. And so what do they decide to do is they come into the temple to, uh, to buy these things instead of bringing them themselves. And as they come in, the money changers know that they can set the exchange rate however they want. 
And then because there's a high demand, you know, the, the, the sellers of, of pigeons and sheep, they can set the prices however high they want. And so what's happening is that uh, these people are being taken advantage of. And there's Hebrew commentary called the Mishnah which gives evidence that there were extortionary prices for doves and for these other animals that were worsening um, the plight of these people and keeping them from coming and offering the sacrifices. And so the place that God had promised to dwell, where all of his people could encounter him in prayer, had become a hideout for thieves and for robbers. It become a cover for corruption couple years ago I was in Guatemala and I was uh, driving by these big nice new restaurants and uh, with somebody that I knew from there and this big Taco Bell that was brand new and I was looking at it and I said to my friend that's a really nice big Taco Bell and she said to me yeah you know that's actually just a front money laundering business for the cartels and I with rage was like the house of tacos has become a den for drug dealers And you think about it though, what is happening in the temple of God is so much worse than that, that the temple of Yahweh, it is functioning as a front business for extortioners. And because of this, we see Jesus' prophetic anger when God's holy presence is disregarded and the worship of God is used as a front business for financial gain and oppression. When I think about this and the money changes, one of the first things that come to my mind is the prosperity gospel preachers. I know a, a college student who grew up in such a church, and he says he remembers a time when he was a kid, and he was at a church function, and um, they were at an event, and he was playing his Nintendo DS. Okay? And it was a brand new Nintendo DS. And the pastor of the church comes up to him, and he says... You know, for God to bless you, you need to show him your faith. And to show him your faith, you have to sacrifice and give him important things in your life. And I think God wants you to give him your Nintendo. And so this guy was like, ah. So he gave him his Nintendo DS. This kid was literally robbed of his Nintendo in the name of Jesus. That is type of things is what makes Jesus throw it down and flip over the tables of the money changers. And we know that many people who, who preach this message, they don't, are not that explicit about it. They just string Bible verse after Bible verse where they conceive of faith as a magical power or a magical force that brings down the floodgates of God's material prosperity or, or material health, all of these things. And, and of course... In such their message, it's money and tithing that, and declaring it with your mouth that activates this faith. They say that's what God really listens to. But I want you to know that such preachers and such message, those preachers literally have no idea of the gospel or of the God that they're talking about. Because if you think about the gospel and the good news, you can put it this way. It is that only Jesus' precious blood is sufficient cost to, it, to secure our eternal inheritance before God. Only his sacrifice was enough. 
And Jesus' blood, it brings us, what, into his family. And so we have a new relationship to God where he becomes our father. This is why when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, our father. You see, you do not have to give your father money for him to bless you. And people who tell you and tell us that we need to sacrifice money or tithe for God to bless us or to do us good do not know the gospel and do not know their God. It is, as Jesus does in the temple, they are a den of robbers. And Jesus gets angry at that. And so should we get angry about such things. But here's the thing that I want you to consider that if we just stop there and we think, yeah, we're going to be like Jesus and we're going to preach, you know, we're going to take down the prosperity gospel. If we think that we're like Jesus coming into the temple, we have missed his prophetic message. You see, the passage in Malachi that this is coming from says this, the Lord will suddenly appear in his temple, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who of us can stand when he appears? And if you and I think that by ourselves that we can stand when he comes, we are gravely mistaken. Because the heart of the problem of these money changers is actually that they are in the very temple area of God and yet they were unconcerned and careless about his holy presence. They didn't care about his presence and yet they're right there in the temple. And as Christians, we must, we should be concerned about the holy presence of God in his temple in two ways that I think. For one, think about it this way. Do you know that as Christians, that the Holy Spirit of God actually dwells inside each one of us individually? In the new covenant, we, our body, becomes the dwelling place of God, the Spirit. And so our body, our physical body, this body that you and I can touch as believers, this is the place of God's holy temple. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 and 19, he says, flee from sexual immorality because every other sin that a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Our bodies are the temple of God's spirit. Our bodies are matter. And so what we do with them are important. We, when we do not flee sexual immorality, pornea as the word is, we show a careless unconcern for the holy presence of God in the temples of our body. And this is a big concern for us. Or think about it collectively as the church. In Ephesians 2, uh, 19 and following, Paul talks about us as the church Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, that we together as a body are being built into a temple. 
Ephesians 2.19, Paul says of us, Jew and Gentile, that we are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also, Jew and Gentile, all of us, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, you and I, from our backgrounds, our differences, we who are Christians are being built together into God's holy temple, into one body. And so think about it this way. When you and I, when we gossip or we slander against other Christians in our church, we are showing an unconcern and carelessness for the holy presence of God in our midst. When we show favoritism to our own groups, whether we are the rich or the poor, the Jew or the Gentile, or even our own biological families, we tear down the holy temple of God. When we gossip, we are the money changers who make light of his holy presence among us in the church. And we do it for the sake of our own gain. And so part of Jesus' prophetic ministry coming into the temple is to wake us up as the money changers. He wakes us up to the way that we disregard his holy presence in our bodies and in the church body. And this is sometimes difficult for us to hear and we should not spurn his prophetic work in our life because what you should see is that the very next thing is that he means for it to bring healing and cleansing ultimately. So you notice the second really short scene which is in verse 14. He says this in verse 14 after he's done this thing he verse 14 it says and the blind and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them you see what Jesus is now doing he is he is the messiah who is entering the temple as the priestly healer of the unclean and excluded ones he's healing the lame and the blind When he's healing them, he's doing something profound here. He's taking on the high priestly role of the Messiah. He shows actually that the house of prayer should be a place where people find healing and cleansing. Even the unclean and the excluded ones, namely those blind and lame who were unclean and excluded. See, they were excluded from entering the sanctuary and the reason goes back to an interpretation of King David's words when he was conquering Jerusalem and taking it from the Jebusites. So that happens in 2 Samuel 5 and this is what it says about the lame and the blind. So David is coming to take the city of Jerusalem and he leads his men to fight against the Jebusites, the original inhabitants of the land. This is what the scripture says. And the Jebusites taunted David. They said, you'll never get in here. Even the blind and the lame could keep you out. Na-na-na-na-boo-boo. That idea. 
because the Jebusites thought that they were safe. But David captured the fortress of Zion, which is now called the city of David, Jerusalem. And on the day of the attack, David said to his troops, I hate those lame and those blind Jebusites. Whoever attacks them should strike by going into the city through the water tunnel. And such is the origin of the saying, the blind and the lame may not enter the house. And so tradition then was that the crippled and the blind could not come in lest their unclean crutches and their unclean mats defile the very temple of God. The main point then that we see here is that when Jesus, when he heals these very blind and lame in the temple, he is claiming authority as the high priest to cleanse and to heal even the lame and the blind, the unclean and the excluded. If you could bring up this slide of the um, temple. You see it in this picture of the temple that the temple, it was a massive court and the the biggest court in there, you can't really see the words, but the biggest section in there is called the court of the Gentiles. Now this, this structure, the temple mount structure, was the largest structure in the ancient Roman world at that time. Like this is as big as the temple to the Dallas Cowboys. Big. It's really big. And what this is pointing to, you, think, you see how big the temple, or the, the section for the Gentiles is. It's huge. And so with this massive court of the Gentiles, it's showing that it was always intended that even those who were unclean and those who were excluded Gentiles, that they would be brought in and come to worship God. You see, the very full quote of Isaiah 56 is is verse 6 and 8, if you could bring that up as well so you can read with me. It says this, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbaths and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. The foreigners... For my house shall be called a, prayer, a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel de- declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those that are already gathered. You see, the foreigners, the dirty, the sinful, the unclean, the excluded Gentiles, you and me, we were intended to be gathered in near to God. And this is what Jesus in his priestly role here as the authoritative high priest, this is what Jesus is doing. How does this get to happen? Because Jesus the high priest makes it happen. And you see this week we are reminded that this week we come to Good Friday. And on Good Friday is when we contemplate the crucifixion of Jesus upon the cross. And if we're going to talk about a time when Jesus actually cleanses the temple, it is when he spills his blood upon the cross. That's the moment when he cleanses the temple and he makes it so. 
Because think about what is it that happened the moment that Jesus gave up his spirit that he breathed his last. The scripture tells us this in Matthew 27. Right after Jesus dies on the cross, it says this, Behold, the curtain of the temple, it was torn in two from top to bottom. And what happens? The earth was shaking and the rocks were being split and the tombs were also opened and many of the dead, they're raised to life. And what happens next? A Roman centurion. He sees this. And the very first words of profession of faith are a Roman centurion who helped kill Jesus. And he says, surely this was the son of God. Do you see what happened when Jesus' blood was spilled upon the cross? The way into God's holy presence in the temple was opened. He fully and finally cleansed the temple and now God's holy presence goes out. And so that the very first person to proclaim faith in Christ is none other than a Roman, excluded, unclean Gentile who killed Jesus. What a high priest that we have here who cleanses the temple. And he shows that he alone, that he has authority over the temple by cleansing the unclean and gathering the excluded, even murderous Roman centurions who profess faith in him. And you think about it. If Jesus then, he has the priestly authority to bring him in, Does he not have the authority to bring you and me in? No matter how sinful, no matter how much shame we have in our messy lives, he has the priestly authority to cleanse us of all of our sins. And we know in El Paso, most of us, we know that Jesus died upon the cross. This is a commonplace And this week we may see images. You may see images of him with the crown of thorns upon his head, with his hands nailed on the cross. You may see images of his side pierced and blood flowing. But the question is, what does that mean? That's the question we must ask. What does that mean? About a month ago I was at Youth for Christ and I was talking to a student who didn't know the gospel. And I asked him, so when you go into a church and you see Jesus dying on the cross, what does that mean for you? And he shrugged and he's like, I don't know. I feel kind of bad. Look, if all we do this week is look at the images of Jesus dying on the cross, we will be left with a vague impression that maybe we should feel guilty for something that we did there. Or maybe uh, we should feel pity for him because he's helpless. He's impotent. He has no power. But we must remember this Good Friday that the crucifixion of Jesus is the way that, that he shows his power to cleanse us. Because as soon as he died, the, the way into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, is made open to us the very heart of God's presence. And so ultimately in Jesus' pitiful death upon the cross, he's taking on all authority to forgive us of our sins and all authority to give us access to God the Father. 
and you realize that this is when he's healing the blind and the lame in the temple, that the chief priests and the scribes, they understand this message. They understand that Jesus is claiming all authority for himself. That's why they get indignant. But you notice that it is the children who recognize his claim to authority and they praise him. They praise him as the king and they say in verse 15, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. And so we see in this third scene in the temple, we see how Jesus, the Messiah, is the king with all authority who receives praises from children. You see, this is when the real showdown begins in the temple. Jesus versus the chief priests and and the scribes. And Jesus is in one corner of the temple and the religious leaders are in the other. And all the while, this showdown happens. And what's going on? What's going on is while they're going on in this showdown, the priests are, are, are indignant and the children... It says they're crying over and over. The priests are upset that Jesus is claiming authority and the children are crying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Hosanna to the Son of David! And they keep on singing this song which they're picking up earlier from when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. This song is about Jesus being the Davidic king. This is the song that we basically think we sing when we sing Hail to the Lord's anointed great David's greater son. They're singing a song about him being the king. And they won't stop. My daughter recently has been singing uh, Hail to the Lord's anointed over and over and over again. She wakes up in the mornings. Hail to the Lord's anointed. Wakes us up. Hail to the Lord's anointed. You know, I'm trying to make my coffee. Hail to the Lord's anointed. Literally, we're sitting at the dinner table trying to have a conversation. And my daughter's, Hail to the Lord's anointed. Could you just stop for a minute? I'm trying to talk to your mother. It's the same image. While these children are saying, Hail to the Lord's anointed, the Pharisees are saying, Do you hear what they're saying? Do you hear what they're singing? Stop. Make these children stop singing. And essentially, Jesus responds to this. Them to this. You scribes who, who scribe the Bible, do you, have you never actually read your scriptures? Psalm 8 says this, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praises. And when Jesus says this, responds, it's not not just a rebuke to the, the Pharisees. He's making a huge claim about himself. He's raising the level even higher. He's raising his claim to authority to the highest level. Because do you know who the children are praising in Psalm 8? The children are praising in Psalm 8 none other than God himself, the Lord, the creator of the universe. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of infants and babies, you have prepared praises. You see, in the temple, Jesus is saying that he is the king. He is, in fact, the Lord God himself with all authority. And yet, 
he receives the praises from small children in the temple. And this is the image that brings us to mind when at the beginning of service we have the children bearing the palm leaves through our service. And you do realize, of course, what this means for us. You realize what this means for us. It means that we have to become like children. And not hold back from saying, Hosanna to Jesus, the son of David. We have to let go of our pride and acknowledge that he is, in fact, the king over all of it. But so often we are more like the disciples of Jesus, who are always arguing about which one of us is going to be the greatest. I mean, we want to be the greatest, don't we? And Jesus says to us who want to be the greatest, to myself. He says three chapters earlier in Matthew 18, unless you turn and you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I was at Costco uh, a few months ago and we're at the checkout line with my daughter. It's my daughter and I and she's wearing this pink polka dot dress that she calls her princess dress. And this woman is standing next to us in the line and, and she looks at my daughter and she says, wow, that must be a princess dress. And I said to her, you're right. She even calls it her princess dress. And the woman looks at me in the eye and she says to me, well, that's because she must be the daughter of a king. And I thought to myself, lady, I have no idea who you are, but I agree. Because <laughs> I think she's calling me a king, right? And then she, a couple seconds later, she looks at me and she says, and so are you. <laughs> and then she says, well, actually, I mean, not a daughter, but, but you are a son of a king. Now I assume that she was talking about God unless she knows something that I don't know about some inheritance that I have. But I took she was talking about being the son of God. The, the, king, the child of the king. Nevertheless, I still liked the sound of being the king more than being the daughter or son of the king. You see, it is hard for us to accept, just like the Pharisees and the scribes in the temple, it's hard to accept that God is in fact the king over, that Jesus and God, the Father, are king over all of creation. It's hard because it means that we have to give up control. It means that we have to become like children who are not in control. But you do realize why it's worth it to become like the children in the temple. That great song that we sing to our children. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. You see, Jesus is strong he is God who reigns as the eternal king with the Father. He is our prophet. He is our priest. And he is our king. And so it is good for us to be the children who belong 
to Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognize that even as Christians, we we struggle with sins every day and we take light your holy presence. And you show us in our lives where we have been unconcerned. But as you do that, Lord Jesus, help us to see the great cleansing of all of our sin that you have purchased on the cross and that you have authority to forgive us of all of our sin. And Lord Jesus, help us to become like the children who recognize that you are strong and you are the king who holds us in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.